Good morning, church. Morning. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, would you grab them, open up to Luke chapter 6. Thank you, band. Great job. Always a joy worshiping with you, taking the Lord's Supper uh, this morning all together. Uh, if you were here last week, you th- you're thinking, wait, did we already covered some of that. Well, uh, it's, it's so formative in the, the life and the ministry of Jesus and his calling of disciples that uh, I want to revisit some of the Beatitudes and we're going to get to the rest of them. Uh, so we have the blessings and the woes that we're going to be uh, looking at here this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we would uh, love to give you one. So we have a, a copy of the scriptures back at the welcome table where if you're new, we would love to get to know you, uh, let you know how you can plug into the life and the family and ministry here at Risen. We also have some under the chairs um, uh, that should be uh, sparsely spread out amongst the sanctuary. So if you uh, grab one of those and you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please take that home uh, with you as a gift uh, for you from us. We believe it's your most uh, treasured thing you can have. We would love to have you have a copy of the scriptures. Um, We're going to be looking at 20 through 26 that we just heard read last Uh, Sunday, we looked at 12 through 23, where Jesus was introducing these Beatitudes. And we we looked at how surprising these words were, these surprising words of blessing. And I say surprising because we would never normally in our own sort of, um, our own categories, place these words in the category of blessing, would we? So Jesus sets the stage, and he's teaching and preaching this sermon to his disciples. Remember, he's looking in their eyes, and he's teaching to the multitudes, and he's calling blessedness, and he's associating blessedness with things like poverty and hunger and weeping and friendlessness and persecution, and it's jarring. And and we looked at how could these things be blessed And we looked at, uh, on one sense, on one level, what the Lord Jesus is doing as he's gathering his disciples. He's just called the 12 disciples, and now he's teaching them what it means to live in the kingdom of God, in this new community that he's building. He calls 12 disciples, represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and he's uh, letting them know that there's a new redemptive history that's coming, that he has come, and he's inaugurating it, and these are the principles of God's kingdom people. And he starts with something that would, be a, would have been so not what they would have thought Jesus would have said. And he's looking at them in the face, remember, and he's, and he's telling them what they're going to encounter and what they're going to face in this life as followers and believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do know that if you know the story and you're a student of the Bible, you know that all of them will face poverty. And all of his disciples would face hunger, and all of them would face weeping, and all of them would face friendlessness and persecution. And I think what Jesus is doing and what he's sort of leaning in and helping them understand is that when these things happen to them, when these things bear down on on them as Christ followers, their reaction wouldn't be, Lord, what's going on here? Why is this happening to me? This shouldn't be happening. Why is this, why is this happening? Why is hunger and persecution and why are my friends leaving me? And so Jesus, in one sense, is preparing his disciples for what lies ahead. He's giving them a full disclosure at the very outset of his ministry and saying, this is what you're going to experience as followers of mine. 
You shouldn't be surprised for this. And so that when this happens to them, they can remember this moment as disciples and say, this is exactly what the Lord Jesus said was going to happen. He's so right. He was preparing me for this. He was building me up to this. He was preparing me for these moments right here. He didn't trick me. He wasn't trying to pull the wool over my eyes. He was preparing me for this life as a Christ follower in this world so that they wouldn't be caught off guard and they would be built up. He's the master discipler. Anyone remember that movie, Apollo 13? Do people still, anyone see that movie? Four of you? Okay, great, awesome. This is gonna go great. For real, no one's seen that movie? Okay, oh, okay, there we are, hi. Good to see you. It's like, I can still see you up here. It's like, what do you think? Like, some of y'all are so funny. Like, he, he probably can't see me. I can see every one of you. We're not that big of a church, Okay. This is a very strange thing for me to do every week, week in, week out. Play along, if you will, please. <laughs> Apollo 13, okay? Great movie, right? One of my favorite parts uh, in uh, that movie is when the NASA administrator walks into mission control, uh, and he's got this message of doom and gloom, things have gone badly. And he says, we've got a disaster on our hands. This could be horrible. And then Ed Harris right, the great Ed Harris. He plays kind of the, 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 the head figure in mission control. He sort of straightens his vest. He gathers himself in this moment, and he pulls his vest down, and he says, I beg to differ, sir. This will be our finest hour. That's so good, right? And you know, you know what's about to happen. He's, he's been preparing for this moment. Everyone in that room had been preparing for moments just like this. They just don't hope for the best. Ed Harris gathered his people and says, this will be our finest hour. We've got this. And Jesus is preparing his believers. He's preparing his disciples in a similar way. He's preparing even you and I as we read these Beatitudes today so that when the moments in life, when the lights seem to go out and darkness seems to prevail and sadness comes our way and hunger and poverty creep in and we can't find our way out, we remember these words and we have a steady resolve and we say, Jesus, you've built me for this. You told me about this. You have been working this in me since the very beginning. You haven't built me to just float on flowery beds up to heaven. You built me to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but lo, you are with me always. Amen? And so today, we're going to look back at some of those beatitudes, and we're going to couple them with the woes. So we have the blessings and the woes that Jesus is getting, getting at here. It's interesting that Luke is the only one who records the Sermon on the Mount, records both Jesus' woes and his words of blessing. Matthew gives us three chapters on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Luke gives us a shorter version of this. Most believe, some believe they're two different sermons. They could have been. Uh, some believe that they are both abbreviations of the same sermon that are given to us in Matthew and Luke. Um, and so in either case, we're given outlines of these teachings of the Lord Jesus at the outset of his ministry. And parts of the outline are given to us in Luke and parts are given in Matthew, but they're there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to emphasize particular truths for us as the church today and Christ followers. 
And this grouping that Luke gives us, Luke the physician, remember, is grouping blessings and woes together. And what Luke does here in grouping them together is he helps us understand what Jesus is getting at in these very can be confusing statements that he gives to us, these upside-down kingdom-like moments. So if you notice, they're grouped together. So verses 20 and 24, I don't know, do we have a picture of all of them together? Probably not. They're all... Um, no, that's okay. But if you notice, verse 20 and 24 says, like, 20 is blessed are you who are poor. And then 24, when you get into the woes, woe to you who are rich. And then you look at 21 and 25, they go together. Blessed are you who are hungry now. And then 25, woe to you who are full now. And then you get blessed are you who weep now. And then woe to you who laugh now. Then you get 22 and 26 go together. Blessed are you when people hate you. And woe to you when people speak well of you. Now, if you've been at Risen Institute, you will know and you will immediately see that, just like Dr. Baker was teaching us, that this, in its literary sense, is a chiastic structure. So they build upon each other, like one up here and the one down here. They start building and they go like this and they get to the very center. And the very center is the main theme that the writer is driving us to that we might find understanding. If you've never, uh, you're not a part of Institute, plug for next semester. Registrations will come up next. It's a great, great class where we learn how to study the word of God. But they're building towards something. And Luke is helping us understand what Jesus is getting at here in these uh, confusing things that he's saying by grouping them together the way that he does. So let's be on the lookout for that as we walk through that, especially what is he trying to get at here? Jesus is helping us understand, and Jesus is helping us, uh, helping it sink into us what the good life really looks like. We're all looking for the good life. We all are looking for happiness. And blessed means how to be happy. And Jesus here, in his uh, reversal of the world's sort of ideas, is flipping the whole thing on its head. And he's teaching us what the good life really is, what the good life really looks like, and how we live in it. And he's concerned with the way that we think about it. And so this is vitally important for us as Christ followers it's vitally important for how we respond as Christ followers to both the triumphs in our life and the tragedies, the joys and the trials, because that's essentially what he's doing here. He's, he's setting up all of these things that n most people would consider really great and, and these things that would, other people would consider really bad, and he's flipping the whole script on its head. And he's helping us understand what life is really about. What is, what is the good life? What is the blessed life? And he's doing it by teeing up these blessings and woes. Now, if, if you've grown up in the church, and I'm, I'm willing to bet most of us have grown up maybe in and out of the church um, at some point, especially here in the South, um, when we read things like these Beatitudes, they, they, they seem very familiar to us. Any, who in here has heard these before, the Beatitudes? See, we're getting better. Good challenged you early because I knew this was coming. Everyone, almost everyone here. It's like, yeah, I've heard these. We're almost sort of like used to it. It's almost like, yeah, this is kind of a, this is the churchy thing. It's blessed are the poor or blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the hungry. And we sort of hear it and we move on. Well, I want you guys to dust off your spiritual imaginations a little bit. Go with me here. I normally don't do 
something like this. But I think because we are so familiar with this passage, uh, that it's so churchy to us, we're almost inoculated to the truths of what Jesus is wanting to do here. So I just, I want to do a little, uh, a, a little exercise and tell a story that I think would, uh, would parallel what Jesus is, is, is saying here uh, that would maybe bring it to home a bit. So humor me, if you will. If you're like, this is weird. I don't normally do this. So let's, we're just going to go for it, okay? Um, so come with me in your imaginations. So set the stage. There's an idyllic scene. A well-to-do, wealthy grandfather and grandmother. They, are, they live in this um, well-appointed, beautiful home out in the country. Large acreage, estate. It's Christmas morning. Uh, he has four children. Um, and there are 15 grandchildren among them. And it's their custom every four or five years to have all of his children come back home to the country home and the estate. And all the kids are there and all the grandchildren are there. And he and his wife, they celebrate Christmas together. And it's a joyous, joyous celebration. <clears throat> and it's the tradition that they get up just before breakfast on Christmas morning. And they open just one present. Uh, and then they go and enjoy breakfast. And later in the morning, they'd gather around the tree and open the rest of their presents on Christmas morning. Well, that morning, early, all the grandchildren are abuzz with Christmas morning, as children always are. And they'd woken up to see that there was a few inches of snow that had dusted the ground. Total idyllic moment. And they're all so excited to run out and make snowballs on Christmas morning and to enjoy the snow. And they're just anticipating all that's going to happen. And they awaken grandmother and grandfather early and they want to get quickly to the opening of the first present. And they want to quickly get to breakfast so they can get out in the yard and enjoy the snow. And as they're gathering around the tree and the smells of breakfast are happening in the kitchen... Grandfather does something a little different this time. Uh, normally it's the custom for the youngest to come and get that first present to open it and select that one. But this morning the youngest grandchild is bidden over by grandfather and he's given a tiny little box. Um, and he's asked to open it. And there's a little slip of paper and the slip of paper, he opens it and he reads and it says a story or a parable. And this hasn't happened before, so the kids are a little bit thrown off. They're like, what's going on here? This is strange. Um, this is not how grandfather normally does it. And grandfather says, my first present to all of you this morning is a story and it's a parable. And it goes like this, looking at his 15 grandchildren on that joyous morning. The happiest children in the world this morning are those who will get no gifts. The happiest children in the world are those that will get no breakfast this morning. The happiest children in the world are those who will spend the morning in tears. The happiest children in the world are the ones who have no friends and are bullied by their schoolmates. The saddest children in the world are the ones who have the most presence. The saddest children in the world are the ones who have the very best breakfast. 
the saddest children in the world are the ones who will spend all morning laughing and playing with their new toys. And the saddest children in the world are the ones with the most friends and are the very most popular. Now, I don't have time to play out this story, this imaginary story, to go through and walk through how all 15 grandchildren probably responded, but I would imagine the very oldest of them would have thought, grandfather has lost it. He's nuts. Something is going, he's forgotten to take something. There's something not right here going on with grandfather, right? This is an odd story. And then some of the younger ones are, are probably grappling with this question, like, wait a minute, does this mean I don't get any presents? They're, they're doing what my kids would ask, like, okay, Pastor Dad, are, I know it's not about the presents, but really, are you, is, are you saying there's no presents this year? <laughs> right, there would be a lot of concern, there would be a lot of, that, that would be a very jarring story to have grandfather be telling on this, what would be this monu- monumental, joyous occasion where everyone is gathered. Does this mean we don't get what we think we really want, Grandfather? And what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes to the disciples and to the multitudes in a similar way is gathering them (coughs) together. (coughs) And he's beginning this this sermon, (coughs) really his first sermon outside the ones that he was preaching in the synagogues to the masses as he begins his ministry when he calls his disciples And this sermon that Jesus gives is no less shocking than the story, imaginary story that I just told you. How it would have hit those grandchildren is how it would have hit these disciples and the crowds listening. It would have been so jarring and so shocking and so unsensible to hear something like this and to hear a top religious leader, Jesus, the one who is whispered to be the very Messiah of God, come in the flesh to say something as provocative as that. It would have been no less arresting to the crowd. Um, and I think probably a lot of the, those listening, just like maybe the grandchildren in my story, would have been wondering, it's Christmas morning. Can't we get a bit of a better story? Jesus, it's the beginning of the ministry. Can't we? Let's, let's start on a little bit more of a rah-rah moment here. It's like, what are you doing here? And so the disciples heard something that would have jarred them. And what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes, and as Luke is grouping the blessings and the woes together, is he is, Jesus is making a mockery of all that the world values and all the world considers a blessing and all the world considers is good and right and things to pursue. And he's flipping the whole thing on its head. He's mocking all that the world would consider a woe. And it's obvious in this story. I know we're, 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 we're bright people, we're smart people, and so when we read it, we should immediately think it should, this should be the case. You know, poverty, weeping, persecution, friendlessness, those are not the top five things I want for my life. Those are not the top five things I want for the life of my children. That's okay to think that. And conversely, we don't think well, a full stomach and laughter and deep friendships and a relative lack of persecution in the world, we would never number those things as some of the worst possible things that could ever happen to us that would, that would uh, be a woe to us or a curse on us. 
and humanity. So you understand Jesus is being deliberately provocative. He's being deliberately ironic to jar them, to shake them out of what they think is good, right, and true. And he's reteaching the ethics of the kingdom of God to them. And this is obvious when you sort of put it in that framework. But here's the question, why? Why? Why is Jesus talking about blessings and woes in this way that so obviously cuts against our instincts and cuts against our sensibilities? Um, He starts with, blessed are the poor. Why? Now, some denominations or some religious folks or religious leaders interpret that as, oh, it's a call that everyone needs to be a socialist. Empty your 401ks, sell everything, give it all away, and go live in a commune together, and that's what God and Jesus is telling us to do here. But is that what he's calling us to do? Take, take a vow of poverty? To sell everything? Is that what Jesus is up to here? There's many that have interpreted that way, but I think it misses the point of the passage. Very clear, I think, what's happening here and what Jesus is teaching And what Luke says in the gospel is that poverty, hunger, weeping, friendlessness, persecution are not in and of themselves a blessed state. Catch that. Jesus, I believe, is not teaching us that poverty, hunger, persecution, and friendlessness in and of themselves, if you just have those, means you're blessed. Conversely, and here's the hard part for us, neither are wealth, a full stomach, laughter, friends, and an easy life are inherently blessed states. Whether those states are blessed or cursed depends entirely on something else. That's what he's driving at. Now, remember earlier, I was talking about how all these things mirror each other, all these, the blessings up here and the woes down here, blessed are the poor and woe to the rich, and they drive in that chiastic structure, and it's driving to the center of the main point. What's the center? What's the main point? On what does it depend on either side of these things? What is the good life really mean? What does it look like to live a life blessed of God? Verse 22, see these words, on account of the Son of Man. It all builds to that point. This is the central point. This is the key to understanding the Beatitudes here in Luke. Whether poverty or wealthy, whether poverty or wealth are a blessing or a curse depends solely on your relationship to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. That's the key to understanding this whole passage. It unlocks the entire passage. See, we, we get so, like, systematic in our approach, and we're like, oh, bless are the poor. I should just be poor. Woe to the rich. Oh, I can't be rich. Uh, I should. The key to both of those sides, the key to both sides of that coin, are on account of the Son of Man. Who is Jesus to you? That's the key to unlocking this whole thing. And it's interesting that of all the gospel writers, Luke arguably could have been the wealthiest. Matthew certainly was up there as a tax collector. Luke was a physician. He was a part of the professional class. Even then, 
in the ancient world. Luke would have been very well-to-do. He would have been a part of the professional class. He had a practice. He was a historian and a physician. He had money. And yet, Luke never uses the word rich in his gospel in a positive way, though he himself was probably richer than arguably most of the other gospel writers. And so I don't believe Luke is sneaking a message of the poverty gospel in here. He's saying, catch this, as someone that has resources in a church, in a town, in a community that has a lot of resources, he's saying that neither wealth nor poverty in and of themselves are blessed states worth uh, striving toward or for, apart from your true treasure Jesus, our Lord, the Son of Man. He's calling us to the true treasure himself. That neither wealth nor poverty need to be a state of blessing nor woe because all of your blessings are not found in your circumstances. They're found in Christ and Christ alone. So, church, if that's true, you can meet and be faced with triumph or disaster and still be okay because Jesus is Lord and he is yours. So why then is Jesus juxtaposing these blessings and woes or curses? Well, the the blessing and the woes are designed to exalt what the world despises and reject what the world admires. You follow that? The blessings are the things the world despises. And Jesus says, you're truly happy if you treasure me, even if you experience what the world despises. And you're truly sad if you don't treasure me, even if you have everything the world admires and thinks is so great. He's flipping the whole thing. And he's saying he's the point of it all. So Jesus is saying in these blessings and these woes are are designed to almost make a mockery of what the world despises and help us reject what the world admires and not spend our lives chasing false imposter things. But you still have to ask the question, why? Why? Why are you talking about, why is this the first thing, Jesus? Why are you talking about this? And the answer, I believe, is relatively simple. Jesus is telling his disciples, and he's telling us, church, today, how he intends his kingdom citizens to be distinct in this world today. How he intends for us to stand out in the world that would make us a distinct and holy people. That as he's gathering a new humanity, the the representative 12 disciples, represent the 12 tribes of Israel that will go and proclaim the good news of the gospel and have churches planted and started in the proclamation of the good news of new kingdom people, that as a result of that gospel proclamation, you are sitting in this room today because of someone's faithful witness to the gospel, that it would spill over and God's people would be marked by something different. That it's not our wealth, it's not our food, it's not our clothing, it's not even our laughter that we enjoy in common, it's not even our friendships with the world that will make us most distinct. Now, 
Let me back up and help frame this a little bit. In the Old Testament, God desired this very same thing. He wanted to make Israel distinct from the nations, didn't he? And so what did he do? He would, he would give them ceremonial laws. He would give them spe- special ceremonial laws that said you couldn't eat certain foods. You couldn't wear certain kinds of clothing. Conversely, they had to wear their hair in such a way. They had to wear their clothing in such a way. They had distinct rites and rituals that non-Jews did not do and found confusing and odd. For example, when it came to food, the Jews were not allowed to eat pork. They were not allowed to eat shrimp. And if you uh, have been paying attention to the news, you know in this region that it's close to the coast of the Mediterranean. And their neighbors today and their neighbors then had vast herds of swine and ate lots of shellfish. And so when they observed the people of God, the Israelites, they did odd behaviors. They didn't eat certain things that were readily available. And they dressed in certain ways. And they had certain festivals that made them stand out and were set apart from so many people of the world around them. And this was on purpose. It made them stand out. And they're like, well, they don't eat this. They wear this. And why? It kept the Israelites from mixing and mingling with idol worshipers. And it helped them stay distinct from the world so that they would be worshipers of the one true God. And he gave them clothing laws. Wear this, don't wear this. So that when the world would see them, they would say, that is the one that worships the God of Israel. And they could look at other people, and you could clearly delineate, this is a Jew and this is not a Jew. And he gave them ritual laws, like circumcision, that they were to practice. And the nations around them did not practice. And so when David, in fact, sees the giant Philistine that comes down to bear on him, David bows up to him and says, look at that uncircumcised Philistine. He's cursing him, essentially. Saying, look at that pagan. We're not like these others. What's God doing? He's building a strong sense of identity into his people. And that identity remains today. And there are many that do not like that identity. And so when Jesus comes, as you know, he abolishes the ceremonial law. He says, no longer are my people bound to these dietary laws and these moral rites and rituals, and mostly because Jesus has fulfilled all of them, especially the sacrificial system. Zach, we just talked about it by taking the Lord's Supper. We don't have to sacrifice animals anymore because Jesus is the final and full Passover lamb that... He, he, was, he was the fulfillment of all that that pointed to. And so in Christ, it's abolished. And so now, as Jesus is building a new people, a new kingdom people that will represent God to the world, here is what he's doing. He is helping us understand how we will be distinct in this world that we live in and navigate in each and every day as God's new people. How are we going to be distinct in the world? And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is describing that for us. This is how we're going to be shown to be different. And it's not the food or your clothing or your rituals, but it's what you value most. What you value most is going to set you apart from the world around you. What you treasure most is going to set you apart from the world around you. 
This is what it means to be a disciple, he's telling us. You are going to be blessed even when you're poor, he says. Because you understand that I'm the only real treasure. You're going to be blessed and happy even when you're hungry because you understand that I'm the bread of life, that I'm the sustainer. You're going to be blessed even when you're weeping because I have come to bring inexpressible joy, full of glory. You're going to be blessed even when you're friendless because I'm the friend of sinners and I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. He's helping us learn how to not treasure and despise all these worldly circumstantial things, but to treasure Jesus above all no matter what we're walking through. Jesus is saying, the thing that will make my disciples distinct in the world is knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt who and what they treasure. Um, and Jesus has us almost, he's, he's like looking at all of us right in the face in these moments. When, we're, we're come, when we come to, um, to face with the things that we pursue as our greatest treasure, and he's rattling our sensibilities, and he's recalibrating us to say, don't chase all these other things, and don't reject me and think that you're not blessed because you're walking through a hard circumstance. You have me, you can walk through all of it. And he's trying to get our hearts to understand where we find our true satisfaction. And he's helping us understand it is not by copying the world. It is not by chasing the world's dreams or the world's bill of goods it sells you that says this is the good life. He's redefining it for us here. We think it's found in money. So we spend our time and our lives chasing it. We think it's found in success or achievements, or popularity, or fill in the blank. And Jesus is saying, not amongst my disciples. Even if they're poor, they know that in me they can have true and full happiness. That even in hunger, when things are taken from them, in weeping, I'm still right there, and I'll wipe away every tear. And no one can do it but me, Jesus is telling. And so they have to come to the point, and we have to come to the point, and we're faced with this sermon that Jesus himself gives, and he's wanting us to come to the recognition and the point of saying, who is your treasure? That you can take everything else away in this life, as long as I have Christ, I have all I need. True blessedness, Jesus is telling us, is knowing Christ our Lord, knowing him as savior, as shepherd, as guardian, as guide, as friend. And knowing that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you because he is your treasure. And when you answer that question, what is the greatest satisfaction in life that I can experience? Your answer, according to the Sermon on the Mount, is fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what I'm walking through, I can do it. So that we can say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians, I know how to abound. I know how to be brought low and have nothing. I faced plenty and I faced hunger. 
but Jesus is my treasure. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can walk through the valley and I can be on the mountaintop so long as Jesus walks with me, I can walk anywhere. That's the Sermon on the Mount, church. On account of the Son of Man, is he your treasure this morning? Let's pray.